Nice to see everybody together, fellowshipping, worshipping. Oh, that wonderful day when we'll all be around the throne. Made perfect, our worship will be perfect. Just think about worshipping God without one distraction. Think about it. Without a distraction. Not a hunger pain, not a rogue thought. No anxiety, no fear. Just perfect peace forever. We're going there. As Christians, that's where we're going. Open up the Galatians. As we conclude our teaching out of the book of Galatians, this will be the last sermon at this point in time. Galatians chapter 6. Start in verse 11. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law. But they desire to have you circumcised that they might boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord, Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all those who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that's alive and active and sharper, Father God. And we ask you to breathe upon the text tonight, Father God, to make this ancient text real to our personal life today, God. God, I pray that the message searches us out, Lord. It searches our heart and searches our mind, Father God, to make this ancient text relative for our own life today. Where are we in this text? I pray that every man and woman in this room tonight can ask the question, what do these seven verses have to do with me? In Jesus' name, amen. As we've been coming to the close of this series out of the book of Galatians, we come to the final end and something transpires, transpires, and that's Paul picks up the pen. Somebody was ascribed for him, some Paul was dictating and someone was writing, and now Paul throws this in out of nowhere that he's picking up the pen and he's finally writing. Uh, there's a reason as we get into it, it just goes to show the urgency of the circumstance. But he's bringing this letter to a close to an unfortunately, unfortunately, deceived believers, hoping and praying for them to return to the true gospel. The true gospel that saved them. The true gospel that was changing them. They received the Holy Spirit from Paul's preaching. Their eyes were open. They received the gift of the Holy Spirit. All of a sudden they went from paganism or dead Judaism. And they were praising God. This Abba Father experience. They, were, they, were, they fell in love with God overnight. Fell in love with God. One moment living in the darkness. And the next day basically babbling to themselves. Jehovah. Jesus. Jehovah. Yahweh. God. 
Jesus, Son of God, Son of Man. They were worshipping God out of nowhere. They were smitten, as it is, by Jesus. But yet, someone came, a bunch of people came preaching a distorted gospel. And would you believe they started to believe it? They were bewitched, Paul says. Paul picks up the pen to show the extreme urgency of the situation. And we'll speak about that a little later on. But Paul, in these last seven verses, sums up the main points of concern that he wrote about. And we're going to sum up some of it as we go along. His main emphasis for writing this epistle. Number one is the false teachers' sinister motives. These weren't sincere motives. They were sinister that lie behind their obsession. This religious obsession with circumcision. They were obsessed with it. But namely because it was bragging rights. And we're going to get into that as we go along. Number two, Paul's understanding of the true Christian devotion to Jehovah. And that is being crucified with Christ. Which is the Christian's only boast in this world. We don't boast in ourselves. We don't boast in anything we can do. We don't boast in anything we're going to do. The only thing we can boast in is what Christ has done. That's all we can boast. And it is a boast. As we're going to get into it as we see. Paul's bottom line of exception with God is through being a new creation in faith in Jesus Christ. Not by the law of Moses or by circumstances. We've, we've covered this throughout the whole text. But understand something. When it comes to these kind of teachings, you can never get enough. Because there is more religiousosity circulating in the Christian movement today than as it was 2,000 years ago. People are crazy about religion. People are crazy to try to please God. To earn God's favor. Please understand something. You cannot. Christ earned it. If we grow in respect of it, we'll enjoy it very, very, very much. And for the only true, the only rule for a believer needs, in a religion without rules, we, we are a religion without rules. The only rule Paul talks about is embracing being a new creation, embracing our identity in Christ, not in religion. Just embracing our new identity in Christ, which is being a new creation in Christ and being led by the Holy Spirit where pride has no place in the human heart. Paul is summing up his main concerns. We're going to go right into verse 12. Uh, verse 11, I apologize. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. Paul is writing for twofold reason with his own hand. It's to authenticate the content of the letter. Somebody could have easily said, well, Paul didn't write that letter. I know his handwriting. Paul, there was a lot said in this letter that undermines this uh, Judaizer's approach to re-Christianizing or, or bringing a sense of Judaism into Christianity and they would have said this letter is too harsh, it's going against the rulers in Jerusalem and Paul wants to make a point that no, this is my handwriting, this is my letter, this is my heart, I'm the apostle to the Gentiles, this is my ministry, this is my sphere of influence, you can rest assured that this letter is penned by my own hands. But it's also to highlight the extreme urgency. And that's today's title. Urgency. And we're going to speak about that. Something had to change in this church. They were on the verge of being severed from Christ. 
falling from grace, chapter 3. Well, what does that mean? How severe is this? Paul knew that if something had not been done, this church that was once a haven for the true gospel, that was a light to the Gentile world, that was moving in the power of the Holy Spirit, that had the joy of the Holy Spirit, because the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit, they were going to fall from this to a legalistic bondage, religious Judaism. And what happened, this church would have been null and void. It would have been, it would have been worthless. It would have lost its power. It would have lost its witness. There were, people wouldn't have been changed into the image of Christ. They would have been going through motions. It would have been mechanical. They would have religion, but no change of the human heart. They would have been severed from grace. Not so much in the loss of their salvations for those who were truly saved, but in their ability to be changed and transformed on a daily basis in the image of Christ and lead other people out of darkness into the light. They would have been severed from that. Once you leave the true gospel, you might say a lot of things and see a lot of things and sing a lot of things, but understand something. If it's not the true gospel, it saves no one and it changes no one. Though there's a lot of stuff going on at the same time. This is what they were close to falling into. So Paul writes, because of the urgency of the matter. He goes right into verse 13, he says this, or verse 12, excuse me. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. Interesting. There's two things that Paul is revealing here. Two motives that are behind these Judaizers, these false Christians that come in the guise of we believe in Jesus too, but there's a big but behind their confession of faith. We believe in Jesus, but there is no but. It's Jesus and Jesus. It's not but be baptized in Jesus' name only. It's not but you have to do this or but you have to do that. It's, it's, there is no but. When it comes to the gospel in Jesus Christ, there is no but. It is Jesus Christ and Him crucified that Paul preached and every true preacher has ever preached ever since. But there's a twofold uh, motivation that's going on here that Paul's going to talk about. And one is that they wanted to avoid persecution, as it says here clearly. They did not come preaching the truth, they wanted to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. The implication is clear. Preaching in this world, in this, we live in a very religious world, you know that? People, everybody likes to say they're not religious until you start talking to them about Jesus Christ. Then you'll see how religious people really are. You tell them Jesus is the only way to salvation and you'll see how religious people get. So you'll see people who are staunch atheists start confessing religion and say, well, I can't believe that. Even an atheist will say that. The implication is clear. Preaching Christ alone and no Jewish laws for salvation will cause a man to be hated. To the point, as Paul says, I bear the marks of Christ on my body. The man was beaten with the rod five times. Christ was done once. Paul received the lashes from the Jews five times. Thirty-nine lashes, five times. Three times he was beaten with a rod. Once he was stoned to death and left there to die. He got up and walked away. He was shipwrecked three times. 
A day and a night he spent in the ocean. And it goes on and on and on, Second Corinthians chapter 11, starting in the 16th verse. This man knew pain. This man knew suffering. It's all because of the message of Christ alone. But it did not stop him from preaching Christ alone. These men didn't want to come under the persecution of elevating Christ over any other religion. So what they did, they preached a little bit of Christ with a little bit of Moses. They come up with this anomaly called Judaizing, which saves no one. It only dangers and harms people, but they did it to water it down, to please men, so that they would not be persecuted by telling people you need to repent and come to Christ. Your religion does not work anymore. It does not work. Religion doesn't work. It had its place in God's history, but it's over now. And there's something important about this, because there's something about grace preaching, and here's what it is. Grace preaching is God alone. There's no room for a middleman. If I preach Christ to you, crucified on your behalf, and you believe and you receive salvation, the only thing I can do now is be a help in your life. But I'm not the middleman. I, I don't own you. You, you have no, no duty to me. It's between you and God now. But in religion, well, I can come in like the hero. And you start worshiping me. Because your only way there is through me. We see that today in personality cults. We see people get so big, they start worshiping the pastor. And Christ is left outside. I go to this church, I, this guy, I said, where's Jesus in this? I don't want to hear about your pastor. I shared this before. Me and Terry were going to San Francisco many years ago. Actually, it was 20 years ago. This weekend, 20 years ago. This weekend, 20 years ago. We're in San Francisco. And I looked, I asked somebody, you know, Where's there a good church? And a reputable person said, go to this church called God. We got online. There was a line around the corner. I said, wow, this is the happening place, you know. And we waited online. We went through the, the turnstile, turnstile again. And we made our way to the balcony. Uh, by the time I got to the balcony, I realized I'm the only one with a Bible in his hand. <laughs> Maybe they know something I don't know. And then the worship came up and everybody started... The grapes are there. This, this is good. Everybody's driving. And all of a sudden, uh, a video started going. It was the pastor. And then another picture of the pastor. And after about 30 pictures of the pastor, I said, what's going on in this place? They're worshiping this guy. And it ended up being a cult, uh, we found out later on. But the, the, that's, the, that's, that's what happens. There's no middleman in grace. It's you and God. That's it. I'm here, the church is here to be a help in your Christian life. That Christ be formed in you, that's it. You owe nothing to me, but I owe everything to you. I'm a servant of Christ. I owe everything to you, not because I'm under some kind of law, because God's called to me. I've got no other option. John has no other option. The leadership has no other option than to serve you for Christ's sake and yours. That's it. We owe nothing. We own nothing. But I want you to listen to this. <clears throat> In Paul's estimation, these false teachers took strong measures to avoid this persecution by taking an even stronger measure of distorting it. And that's what people do when we try to please men, we distort the gospel. Paul would rather physically be distorted and bear the marks of Christ than distort the gospel that saved him. To follow Jesus faithfully and proclaim the gospel unflinchingly, please understand something, is to invite persecution. All those who 
to who desire holiness and godliness will be persecuted, Paul says. Number two. But they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. Well, what does that have to do with us? Behind all the sinister motives and desires, it is to win converts over to their religious side. It, it sounds ugly, isn't it? It goes on all the time. These people were lifting themselves up above Christ. And they were playing sport with the Galatian converts. These people are on the verge of being severed from Christ. I hope there's a chill that goes down your spine when you hear being severed from Christ. To be severed from Christ is to be left adrift. And I've shared this before. I think it was 2001 Space Odyssey. It was never, I'll never forget that scene where the guy was outside the capsule. And all of a sudden he got severed from his capsule. And he just saw him going backwards into space. Severed from all safety. Just adrift in the universe. And you saw the horror on his face within the mask, the helmet. Severed from any safety. Severed from any assurance. Severed from any hope. Severed from any confidence. Severed from life. To be severed from Christ is to be severed from all life. I hope you feel that way. I hope Christ to you is more than just my personal Savior. I pray that Christ means so much to you that the thought of being severed from Christ is a horror to you. But that's what these certain men did, wished to do. They didn't care about their salvation. They didn't care about their relationship with God. They were caring about cutting off their flesh. They were, they were concerned about circumcision. They wanted to get a name for themselves with the mother church of Jerusalem of the great work they were doing against Paul's uh, churches. Paul was not a like man. He was a marked man. He was God's mock man. They wished to be noticed by a certain hierarchy in the church of Jerusalem. The church that was still sympathetic to the Jewish nation. With its ethnic markers and distinction of superiority over the Gentiles. Paul would have nothing to do with this. He read right through there. Ill and sinister motives. Verse 14. Paul, if you want to boast, listen to Paul. But for me, far be it for me to boast and accept in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Paul moves now to show what proper boasting is. Boasting is okay. Actually, the word boasting, it's only used here. It only has one usage in the New Testament besides rejoicing. He's rejoicing. Or glory. We exalt in the glory of God. We rejoice. We boast in the glory of God. What Paul is saying is there's a certain joy that comes with glorifying God. But these false teachers were glorifying in themselves, not Christ. They had a sense of joy in what they were doing by building a name up for themselves. It still goes on today. There are the churches filled with ill motives and personal agendas. And people are rejoicing of what they're doing, not what Christ has done. But Paul says, no, for me it's the boasting cross of Christ, justification alone in Christ, that is it. That's what I'm going to rejoice in. What brings us great joy? 
Is it winning people to Christ or winning people from another church to come to another church? Or is it just Christ? That's it. Just Christ. Can you and I be Christians that say the only thing that brings me joy is Jesus Christ? That's what Paul is saying here. For Paul and all true believers, there is joy, but it's found only in Jesus Christ. In that alone, in his cross. Paul already referred himself once already in chapter 2 as being crucified with Christ. Now he goes even further. He says, I've been crucified to the world and the world is crucified to me. But what does he mean? To be crucified to the world. And the world crucified to me. What is this figure of speech? What is this metaphor? What is this? What, what is he trying to say here? Well, this is what he's saying. When a sinner comes to saving faith in Christ and Prayerfully, that's you here today. Your whole world is changed upside down. Fundamentally, now here's how it goes. Fundamentally, you were once and I were once in darkness, alienated from the life of God. But we've been quickened, we were washed and regenerated by the work of the Holy Spirit, taken out of darkness into the light. One day I could have cared less about Jesus. One day I could have cared less about sinning. One day I loved my sin and the next day I was just enthralled with Jesus and I wanted to live a righteous life. Amen. Hopefully that sounds familiar to your testimony. Something on a fundamental spiritual level, on the quantum level, changed. But in practice, in practice now, God is sanctifying us and taking that love of the world out of us. First John says it best. First John chapter 2, listen to this. It's the world system and its values. Listen to the way John says it. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is of this world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the prideful possessions of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away with all those desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Paul is saying the same thing John says. The world's fascination with material wealth, with fame, with beauty, with greed, with money, the desires for other things is all idolatrous. It's all empty. It all comes to an abrupt end. And when we're Christians, something has changed. There's a greater value. There's no allure to the things of the world. When a man has been born again with the Spirit of God, the empty things of this world just doesn't produce an ounce of happiness anymore. It is over. It is empty. Now, there's a transition. I, I have to be honest with you. A young Christian might not know that right away. A young Christian has to go through the process of realizing the things that once were held in such high esteem really just doesn't do it no more. That's the process. A young Christian has to go through that. A mature Christian has to watch that and pray for them and help them and guide them into this transition between the old man and the new man, between a love for God and a love for the world and other things. It, it takes time. But we understand something, that there's no true happiness in the things of this world. There's no true happiness in and the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, and the desires of other things. There's, there's no happiness. It's empty. They're empty calories. At the end of the day, they leave you hungover. I think Solomon said it best. It's vanity and chasing after the wind. That's what Paul's saying here. But verse 15 is unique. I want you to know something. 
Listen to verse 15. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Paul qualifies verse 14. He qualifies. He could have left it as, but far, but far be it from me to boast and accept in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. I just gave you a general understanding of what the Bible talks about the world, but Paul here is talking about the religious world. I don't want you to miss this. Paul qualifies verse 14 by the world's religious pride. There's a religious pride in the world, and that's what Paul is talking about here. Circumcision, that, that would have been uh, ethnic Israel's claim to fame. Remember what they told Jesus? We have Abraham as our father. Abraham, Jesus said, you've got to be kidding me. If Abraham was your father, do the works of Abraham. They told John the Baptist the same thing. Abraham's our father. What did John the Baptist say? God is able to raise up children out of these stones. No. Physical, biological, ethnicity to Abraham does not save a man. Religious pride does not save a man. It's defined as circumcision or uncircumcision. It means absolutely nothing. Listen to the way Paul says about this human effort in Philippians 3, chapter uh, 3, verse 3. Listen to it. <coughs> For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, or boast, same word, in Christ Jesus. And we put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, listen to his religious pride. If anyone else thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, I was a Pharisee. As to zeal, I persecuted the church. As to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. But whatever gain I had, in this religious, prideful world, I count it as a loss just for the sake of knowing Christ. That's what Paul was talking about here in verse 15. This world of religious pride, Paul came out of that. Paul was a religious superstar. He had all his T's crossed, he had all his I's dotted. When he walked down the block, they, they would bow to Paul. They loved Paul. When they were stoning Stephen to death, they all ran over to Paul and they, they gave him his dead coats to watch as their seal of approval. Paul was a religious superstar and he took it all and through it he says, I count it all as rubbish just for knowing Christ my Lord. <clears throat> Only a new creation, that's our identity with Christ and his efforts, not ours, count for everything. That's what Paul was talking about Philippians. It has nothing to do with all my religious efforts. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was born of the tribe of Benjamin. I was circumcised on the eighth day. As to the Lord, I was, I was blameless. As to zeal, I persecuted the church. I got all my religious points, but you know something? I throw it all away just for faith in Christ and the foolishness of the cross and all the marks I bear and all the scorn I receive for being a Christian and converted to Christianity, I count it all as a loss just for knowing Christ and Him crucified. Verse 16. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. The only rule that counts, there's a little controversy over this verse of Scripture, I'm not going to get into it, I will call it as 
clearly as I see it right now, and I'll leave more of the details at a later time. It's not all that important right now, but there's a lot that goes, a lot of ink that's been spent on this verse of scripture, and I chose not to deal with it now, only because it would take a whole sermon. Okay? So let me just give you a, a, a short understanding. The only rule that counts is the rule of a new creation with no religious pride who is led by the Holy Spirit. That's the rule Paul is talking about in the whole epistle. Faith in Christ and be led by the Holy Spirit. Anybody who is being led by the Holy Spirit, anybody who put their faith in Jesus as Messiah and is being led by the Holy Spirit, God's grace and God's mercy will be upon those people and nobody else. You got to have faith in Christ. God's mercy and grace does not abide on people outside of Christ. They're in the darkness. It's only on those inside of Jesus Christ who have faith in Christ and who are led by the Spirit. God's continuing grace of strengthening, God's continuing mercy of dealing patiently with His people will always be on them. Christ's rule of making us new creations by grace and not works. And the subsequent boasting about our Savior and the humility of mind it produces as we are led by the Spirit, that's all that counts. Upon them and them alone rest God's mercy and peace, the divine presence and power to live and honor God and to enjoy Him. Whether believers in the Gentile world, that's them, in verse 16, as for all those who walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God and upon the Jew who believes and lives by this rule of a new creation and not by some superior ethnic evaluation of themselves. Now, just to, let's give a little background over here. Within the Christian church, there are two interpretations basically of this verse of scripture. That Paul is making a distinction between believing Gentiles and believing Jews. Uh, or that Paul is summing up all true believers, Jew and Gentile, and calling them the true Israel of God. Uh, if you're familiar with any kind of theology, that's called covenant theology and dispensationalism. Dispensational believes that there's a separation between the Gentile church and the nation of Israel. And that God is still working for the nation of Israel in a very special way. Uh, we personally don't hold to that wholeheartedly here. We believe in more covenant theology. We believe that God is working with everybody, both Jew and Gentile together. That constitutes the church. But I have to say that within the New Testament, people on a dispensational side make a very strong case. Because 65 times the nation of Israel is mentioned in the New Testament. Every time it speaks about the nation. So we have to believe that somehow Paul is talking about the nation of Israel over here. But what he's talking about are believers in the nation of Israel, not the nation of Israel. All the elect within the nation of Israel. He gives credence to them and he says, yes, there's a genuine work of God going within Israel. Who are the elect? These are the Israel of God. I'm comfortable with that interpretation. I'm also familiar with Romans chapter 9. You have to understand Romans chapter 9, 11, and 12, uh, 9, 10, 11 to understand that. So I just throw that out there, not to just to, to let you know where we are. There is a lot that goes behind here, but I'm going to read it the way I wrote it. 
Upon them and them alone rest God's mercy and peace, the divine presence of power to live for God and to enjoy Him. Whether they're believers from the Gentile world, which is identified as them, or upon the Jew who believes and lives by the rule of being a new creation and not by some superior ethnic evaluation of themselves. They're the true Israel. They're not the true Israel because they're uh, biologically in Abraham. They're the new Israel because they now have faith in Messiah and they live by the new rule. Are you with me? Yes. Grace and mercy is upon them. Because Paul was one of them. And you have to understand Romans 9, 10, and 11 for that. But I think that's enough said about that. Verse 17. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. For Paul uses his unique qualifications of marks from many, many beatings, as I mentioned before, to make a point that his message of salvation by grace came with the marks of physical persecution. The false teachers had no marks at all because they avoided, remember, they avoided persecution. Yet they marked others with circumcision so they can gain from their flesh and brag about it. To be sure, in the first century, Christians were constantly persecuted for their faith. And it was a sure sign of their commitment to Christ. Matthew 5 teaches us that, Blessed are you when you're persecuted for my sake, my name's sake, and reviled for my name's sake, because great is your reward in heaven. But listen to 1 Peter 4.14. If you were insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Persecution was a sign of salvation in the first three, four, five centuries of Christianity. If you were a Christian for any length of time, at the time of the apostles, you can rest assured, somewhere along the line, you were persecuted. We are so far removed from that. Where are we? We'll find out if you pass the application test. And I'll just close with verse 18 over here, before I get into application. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be upon your spirit. Amen. Paul simply closes this letter with a brotherly affection and a term of endearment to let them know that I'm for you. I'm not against you. But let's just move into application. Urgent. Do you ever find yourself speaking with a sense of urgency to people about spiritual things? Do you ever see people who are on the verge of being severed from Christ? Do you know people who are Christians that are have left the faith? Do you know Christians that have left the Christian community? They're not involved in the Christian church anymore because of maybe one thing or another? They're at the verge of being severed from Christ, losing their salvation? No, if they generally say they're not going to lose their salvation. But I'll tell you one thing, they won't enjoy life. You, if you're a Christian, you can't enjoy life outside of Christ. It doesn't work. You can't take a round peg and put it in a square hole and say it works. A Christian who is born again and is not in the body of Christ, who is not serving the Lord, you cannot enjoy life. Every fear of life will overwhelm you. There will be dread in your life. These are consequences of severing oneself from the body of Christ. How do we speak to people? When I know many people like that. My, I, I give everybody the one and two shot. I go for it once and I have that awful hard conversation and I feel like I'm going to the dentist without Novocaine. <laughs> and I got to sit down and say, right, you know, listen, I love you and, uh, you know, I, I got to talk to you. And sometimes you win people back over to the Lord. That's what Paul's doing here. I think about when Paul said in uh, verse 18, Amen. 
He probably put the pen down, the quill, maybe blew out the candle, maybe it was night. He turned to Titus and said, and Titus would say, well, what do you think, Paul? I give him the God now. There's nothing I can do. I gave him the urgent call. There's nothing more I can do now. I've done it all. The grace of God be with them now. I don't know. We have to speak up with a sense of urgency, a prophetic urgency at times. Every Christian's called to do it no matter how uncomfortable it is. We are called to confront people who are on the verge of being severed from Christ and they don't know it. These disciples had no idea how far they had fallen. Paul knew it. He had to come and speak life to them and he writes with these big letters in his own hand to under highlight how urgent this is. You're on the verge of being severed from Christ. You don't know how bad it can get to be a believer and not follow the truth. I know many Christians that I believe are truly saved and are not walking with God. There's not one happy one. You cannot. God won't do it. God disciplines all those He loves so that it proves they're the legitimate children of God. If you have not been disciplined by God, the Bible says you're illegitimate children. We need to stop walking around, as they say in Alcoholics Anonymous, looking at the pink elephant in the room. You ever hear that expression? Well, for many of us that come out of that background, it's like walking into the house and someone's bombed and is an alcoholic and no one's saying anything. The wife is doing her thing and the children are doing everything. What's going on here? The, the home is dysfunctional. And nobody wants to say nothing. Don't. Don't say nothing. Well, Christians, we can get like that. If someone's confessing Christ and they're not living for Christ, it is our obligation to bring them back to Christ. Whether they know they're deceived or not. And you can rest assured, if you do that, you'll be persecuted. But I tell you right now, it's your obligation to friends, family, and whoever else. If someone confesses Christ and they're not living for Him, it is our job to confront its urgent. Number two, receiving the gospel of grace for salvation and preaching it to others are a beast of two different colors. Receiving it comes with great joyful times. But preaching it can, can be very, very painful at times. Preaching Christ and Him crucified as the only means of salvation in this world will bring great persecution on us. And I ask you this, what Paul says in verse 17, I bear the marks. What kind of marks are we wearing for Christ? Have we lost friends and family, jobs? Have we lost acquaintances? Have we got people say, take that Bible and... We've had our family members tell us that. I don't want to take you... I won't give the superlatives, but take that Bible and you know what to do with it. I want nothing to do with this Jesus. If a thing costs nothing, men value it as nothing. William Barclay. If it costs nothing, it, it, you don't value it. I ask you today, you're a witness. First of all, are you a Christian? Are we Christians? Witnessing is part of the Christian faith. 
You can do a song, a dance, try to justify, rationalize why you don't. I'll tell you right now, you're not serving Christ in this area. Witnessing should be a natural outfall of a relationship with Christ. With it brings hardships, it brings marks. How well do we avoid being persecuted like those false preachers? Remember what it says? They do everything to avoid being persecuted. Do we avoid talking about hell? Do we avoid talking about sin? Do we avoid talking about the hard doctrines? Is our witness nothing but God loves you? Is that it? Are we avoiding being persecuted? Are we avoiding someone saying something bad about us? Who here has shed blood for Christ? None of us have. We don't want people talking about us. We don't want people speaking ill about us behind our back. We don't want to lose our reputation. We want everybody to speak well of us. Where are the marks of Christ? Can you stand up to yourself in the mirror and say, you know something, I've been persecuted since I've been saved. Or are we avoiding it? Are we justifying it? Are we? Uh, uh, is our, did you stop witnessing? I'm going to tell you right now. Have you stopped witnessing? I've known many Christians when they came to Christ were zealous for the Lord. I don't know if they talk about Christ to anybody anymore. Are you witnessing? It's your job, it's your responsibility to witness for Christ. Even if you lose your life, it's your responsibility. All this was brought about because of deep, deep convictions by Paul about Christ. How deep of our convictions about Christ? Number three. This is an interesting point. Paul was concerned about one thing, that Christ would be formed in them. Chapter four. My only thing is I labored amongst you that Christ would be formed in you. That's the heart of a father. That's the heart of a mother. But yet the Judaizers, the false teachers, all they wanted was to brag in their conversion. They were concerned more about themselves than they were about the individual. How important it is to understand this principle. That in Christianity there is still today a competitive nature between churches, between ministers, between denominations to win and to pad the number system. And they get into this number game of getting people into the church. But they're not concerned about Christ being formed in them. Paul was not concerned about anything but Christ in them. A true shepherd's heart. So many times over the years, I've seen people, especially in small churches, we've got to be careful, we're a small church. But we are confident that everything we do is that Christ is formed in you. But I have had the unfortunate experience of people saying, well, you know something, there's more for you. That that's not enough. The anointing is not at the church. You need more. And what people try to do within the Christian context today is that they try to get you to have their experience. They're not saying is Christ formed in you. Are you loving God? Are you picking up the cross? Are you serving the Lord? Are you loving the lost? Are you being transformed into the image of Christ? That has to be the major concern. Not how much you think you're supposed to enjoy church. As church is supposed to be an entertainment. Church is discipleship. 
Church is worship. Church is a sacrifice. It has nothing to do with what God can do for you. It has everything to do with what you can do for God. Period. That's church. That's Christianity. And if that's not the heart in you, then that is just not right. That's not right. We bring ill motives. Serving the Lord. Where you are. The grass is not greener on the other side. It happens, unfortunately, there's a spirit of competition within the church today. I could spend more time on that. I got a lot of notes on, but I'm not going to close with this. How crucified are to the world are we? I ask you right now. How crucified to the world? That's the only sign of true Christian devotion. Are you crucified to the world? Am I crucified to the world? Is the world crucified to me? This system of idolatry is our heart truly crucified to this a system that has its own interest as its foundation for life its own happiness, its own time, its own energy its own dreams, hopes how crucified to the world are what I'll ask you this question what gets you up in the morning what's the driving force and power in the morning when you wake up What's the first thing on your mind? What's the first thing you pursue in the morning besides a cup of coffee? <laughs> I'm an idolater. I like the boutique style coffee. If it's not $20 a pound, I don't buy it. <laughs> What's the first thing we really pursue in the morning? Is it Christ? Because if it's not, we're not all that crucified to the world and the world to us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord. We thank you that you give us opportunity now to be crucified with you, God. God, that we can be crucified to this world system, Father God. That you're coming and sanctifying us. You're not competing with the world, Father God. You love us so much, you don't want to see us in a love affair with the idols of this world, Father God. You love us. You have more for us, Father God. This empty world system that uh, it, it, it promises happiness, Father God, but there is just no fulfillment whatsoever. It's a merry-go-round. It's a, a treadmill that goes around and around and around, Father God. And it's, it's never fulfilling, Father God. A soul is not fulfilled until it rests in you, God. Lord, come and save us from the idols in our life. Father God, save us from the lack of witness, avoiding persecution, Father God. Forgive us, Father God, if we ever got caught up in gamemanship and competitiveship and, and uh, comparing ourselves to other churches, Father God. Forgive us of all this vanity of vanity and chasing after the wind, Father God. And God, if we know anybody in our life that's living on the edge, who's about to be severed from Christ, God, let us speak with a prophetic urgency to call people back to repentance and faith in Christ, Father God. For the time is near. Salvation is closer today than when we first believed. In Jesus' name, amen.